At about 7 in the morning on October 15, 1985, Janet McDermott arrived at work to find a strange package outside the office next to hers. The box was about a foot square and six inches deep with no postal markings on it, just the words, to Steve Christensen, written in black ink. As colleagues, Christensen and McDermott normally accepted each other's packages, but on this particular morning, she hesitated. The package looked personal, and thus McDermott left it in the hall. An hour later, McDermott saw the package was still sitting in the open. She decided to take it into her office for safekeeping. But before she picked it up, she ducked back into her office to answer her telephone. Just as she reached her desk, an explosion shook the building, shrapnel bursting through the door. The debris sliced her leg, but luckily she was otherwise unharmed. Others weren't so lucky. McDermott limped out into the hall where she found Steve Christensen lying on the floor, his chest caved in and his face covered in blood. And with one package bomb, Mark Hoffman had graduated from forger to murderer. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Con Artists for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Con Artists in the search bar. Last week, we began our discussion on Mark Hoffman, a Mormon document forger responsible for deceiving the LDS Church and some of the country's leading forgery experts. This week, we'll explore how Hoffman struggled to maintain his increasingly complex schemes and why he eventually turned to murder. We've got more on Mark Hoffman coming up. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. 
So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, back to the story. By 1985, 30-year-old Mark Hoffman was feeling confident enough to step out of the narrow world of Mormon historical documents and join the big leagues of forgery. He forged his most ambitious and valuable document yet, the Oath of a Freeman, the first item ever printed in America. The oath was a pledge required of all members of the Massachusetts Bay Company and was printed in 1638 or 1639. Hoffman entered into negotiations with the Library of Congress to sell the oath of a freeman for a staggering $1.5 million. In addition to this whopping sale, Hoffman promised to donate a valuable set of papers to the Mormon Church, known as the McClellan Collection. The collection was comprised of the papers of an early, renegade Mormon apostle named William McClellan. According to Hoffman, the collection he had discovered contained a priceless Mormon cache that had been lost for decades. This was no mere clutch of letters. It was by far the most extensive bundle of documents Hoffman had ever promised to the church. In fact, it was a promise he could never hope to keep. Because, of course, Hoffman did not have the actual McClellan collection. Worse, he did not even have a forgery of it when he made his promise to the church. As to why Hoffman promised to donate the collection before he forged it, no satisfactory answer has been offered. We can only theorize about why Hoffman acted the way he did, Perhaps he finally just bit off more than he could chew, or let his arrogance get away from him. Another possible explanation for Hoffman's behavior is grandiose narcissism. According to a 2017 paper published in Frontiers in Psychology, grandiose narcissism entails exaggerated self-worth, feelings of grandiosity and superiority, admiration-seeking, as well as entitlement and arrogance. Hoffman's ambitious overpromise of the McClellan collection certainly points to an exaggerated self-worth, and his previously stated desire to deceive others smacks of feelings of grandiosity and superiority. He could have continued to quietly sell forged Mormon documents and make a comfortable living, but instead he took a huge, unnecessary risk. It's possible that he behaved so recklessly because his narcissism made him supremely confident in his ability to outsmart others. In any case, Hoffman promised the collection to the church, so he had to deliver. But forgery wasn't enough for Hoffman. He added grift to his scheme. He claims that in order to purchase the collection from its owner, he needed money. Hoffman reached out to the elder Hugh Pinnock, a church leader and member of the board of directors of First Interstate Bank. 
Stephen Christensen, a financial consultant and another frequent customer of Hoffman, helped arrange the deal. In exchange for organizing a bank loan of $185,000, Hoffman agreed to give Pinnock the McLellan collection to then present to the church. Since he was planning on forging the documents, the money he sought was either a reckless cash grab or to cover other debts he had accumulated. Even while making tens of thousands of dollars from his forgeries, he continued to bounce checks and failed to repay loans. In other words, he was building a very precarious house of cards. That house of cards soon came crashing down. By September, the Library of Congress had decided that $1.5 million was too steep for the oath of a freeman and ended all negotiations with Hoffman. They returned the oath and wished him luck. Then, in August, Pinnock learned that Hoffman had not repaid any of the loan. Hoffman wasn't responding to calls, so Pinnock called Christensen and chewed him out. Where was the money? By then, Hoffman had likely spent the money, perhaps using it to square his other debts. In September, Hoffman even took a check to First Interstate to pay back the loan, but it bounced. With the pressure mounting, Hoffman, desperate for cash, turned to Brent Ashworth, one of his closest friends and best customers. Hoffman attempted to sell Ashworth a piece of Egyptian papyrus he claimed was part of the McLellan collection, which he was willing to let go for $30,000. He had already tried to sell it for $40,000 to other buyers who weren't interested. Yet, Hoffman's scheme fell apart when Ashworth showed the papyrus to several local experts. The experts advised him against the purchase because they couldn't confirm that the papyrus fit with the McLellan collection. It seemed that in his desperation, Hoffman was getting sloppy in his forgery. His sloppiness became his downfall. By early October, Hoffman was compelled to reveal to Elder Pinnock that the oath sale had fallen through and he could no longer afford to donate the McLellan collection. But Pinnock wasn't about to let the McLellan collection slip through his fingers. He quickly found a wealthy Nova Scotia businessman who was willing to buy the McLellan collection with his own money, then donate the collection to the church. Yet while the businessman was willing to help the church at great personal cost, he had one stipulation. He wanted Stephen Christensen to be present at the deal to ensure that the McLellan collection was genuine. The payment check required endorsements from both Hoffman and Christensen before it could be cashed. Initially, both Hoffman and Christensen agreed to the terms, and the exchange was arranged for Friday, October 11th. When the time came, however, Hoffman failed to show up. Furious, Christensen told a mutual friend to track Hoffman down and warn him that he could be excommunicated for double-crossing a church leader like Pinnock. Upon receiving the threat, Hoffman rescheduled the deal for Tuesday, October 15th. On that day, Christensen arrived at his office just after 8 a.m. 
He picked up the brown package waiting for him outside his office, and the package exploded against his chest, killing him. Across town, at about 9.30 a.m. that same morning, Kathy Sheets returned home from a trip to the bank. As she pulled into her driveway, she found a square brown box waiting for her. There were no postal marks on it, just the name of her husband, Mr. Gary Sheets, written in black ink. Gary Sheets was Stephen Christensen's business partner. Kathy had no idea that Christensen had been murdered less than two hours prior. She picked up the package and headed toward her front door. Within seconds, the motion-sensitive pipe bomb inside the box exploded. Kathy Sheets died instantly. Kathy wasn't Hoffman's intended target, but that didn't matter. The second bomb was only ever intended to throw the police off his trail. Stephen Christensen and Gary Sheets had, until very recently, been business partners running a tax shelter company called Coordinated Financial Services. But Christensen had just cut ties with the business under somewhat suspicious circumstances. Dozens of their clients lost significant amounts of money in bad investments. Though Christensen and Sheets had not taken the money themselves, investors likely held them responsible for the losses. Shortly after the bombings, Sheets showed police a list of the company's investors and told them, here are your suspects. For a time, it appeared that Hoffman had successfully directed the investigation away from himself. The day after the tragic bombings, Hoffman agreed to deliver the McLellan collection to Pinnock as promised. He made a stop on his way, parking his blue Toyota MR2 sports car outside a gym on Temple Square in the heart of Salt Lake City. Hoffman entered the gym and came out again at about 2 p.m. A witness saw him leaning into his car and rearranging something on the front seat. Then, a bomb exploded inside his car, throwing Hoffman to the street. He was alive, but badly injured. One of his knees had a hole ripped through it, while a fingertip had been blown off his right hand, exposing bone. It seemed as though Hoffman had become the third victim in a sinister string of bombings. According to reporter Robert Jones, in the aftermath of the bombings, the normally tranquil Salt Lake City was thrown into a panic. Other documents dealers fled the city, fearing that they would be targeted for death like Hoffman was. The bomb squad received so many calls about suspicious packages that their bomb-sniffing dogs collapsed from exhaustion. And in Jones's words, a parcel delivery man was chased and beaten when he left a package wrapped in brown paper on a porch. Salt Lake City detectives Ken Farnsworth and Jim Bell were put in charge of the case. Their first step was to talk to Mark Hoffman. When the detectives interrogated Hoffman in the hospital, he claimed that he had been on his way to a meeting that afternoon when he opened his car door and a package fell from the seat to the floorboard. As he reached for it, the package exploded. 
The detectives then went to the scene of the third bombing to see if Hoffman's story checked out. But when they relayed Hoffman's story to the bomb squad, it didn't add up. The package could not have fallen to the floor because the bomb had clearly exploded while on the front seat. Further, they were convinced that Hoffman had already been inside the car when the bomb exploded, not reaching in as he had claimed. These small details pointed to a larger truth. Hoffman was lying. Up next, we'll follow the investigation into Mark Hoffman's murders and how his near-perfect forgeries were finally exposed. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. In 1985, a series of package bombings terrorized Salt Lake City. Two people were killed, while a third explosive put 30-year-old Mark Hoffman in the hospital. At first, it appeared that Hoffman was a victim, but closer investigation quickly cast doubt on that assumption. In Hoffman's destroyed car, investigators found shredded, burnt papyrus paper, rubber gloves, and a felt-tipped pen. And in the trunk, they discovered a piece of pipe elbow. Though the bombs were made with straight pipe, investigators suspected that Hoffman might have also purchased a useless pipe elbow to make it appear less suspicious. Hoffman was named as the prime suspect in the bombings. However, Others in the community weren't so certain. Some thought that an angry investor from Coordinated Financial Services was behind the killings. Perhaps someone on the list Gary Sheets had shown investigators. If that was the case, it wasn't clear why Hoffman would be targeted for retribution. But then again, it was equally unclear why Hoffman would target Gary Sheets. There was also the possibility, however outrageous, that a fanatical member of the Church of Latter-day Saints was responsible. It was common knowledge that Stephen Christensen had purchased the controversial Salamander letter from Hoffman. Perhaps a zealot had carried out the bombings to protect the church from the kinds of faith-shaking documents that Hoffman routinely produced. Still, detectives Bell and Farnsworth focused on building a case against Hoffman. At first, their evidence against him was circumstantial. And worse, they had no motive. They couldn't understand why Hoffman would want to kill Sheets, let alone Christensen, who had frequently been Hoffman's partner in the lucrative historical documents business. 
Investigators worked around the clock to find answers. Their relentlessness paid off when explosives experts caught a break in the case. The batteries used in the bombs had a brand name imprinted on them, Radio Shack. Investigators confirmed that the batteries, battery packs, and mercury switches used in the pipe bombs had all come from Radio Shack. Now they just needed to prove that Hoffman had been the one to purchase them. While searching his home, detectives found an envelope with the name Mike Hansen written on it. Investigators figured Hoffman could have used an alias to purchase the bomb parts, and now the name Mike Hansen seemed to be the key. Police visited Radio Shack stores all over Utah, collecting tens of thousands of receipts. They then sifted through boxes upon boxes of receipts, one by one, searching for the names Mark Hoffman or Mike Hansen. An entire squad was assigned to look through Radio Shack receipts full-time. All in all, investigators poured through nearly 500,000 receipts. Then, finally, a detective had a hunch about a box of receipts which had already been sifted through twice. A rookie volunteered to go through it a third time. Inside, they found a receipt for a battery pack and mercury switches made out to M. Hansen. It was an important clue, but not yet enough to pin Hoffman. They may not have realized it, but to crack the case, investigators would need to prove that Hoffman was a forger. During their investigation, police searched the home of Dean Jesse, the church historian who had authenticated the Anthem transcript and the Salamander letter one year earlier. Concerned that Hoffman had become a murder suspect, Jesse called special agent George Throckmorton, a documents expert in the Utah Attorney General's office. Jesse asked Throckmorton if he could look over a copy of the Salamander letter and other documents to ensure they were really authentic. Throckmorton agreed to help. In truth, he'd been following the investigation for a while with growing frustration. The special agent typically exposed forged credit cards, wills, and tax statements for the Attorney General's office. Though historical church documents were technically outside his purview, he knew from experience that a document like the Salamander letter simply could not have been authenticated as it had been described in the press. Whenever newspapers declared that a Hoffman document had been proven genuine, they were stretching the truth. According to Robert Jones, Throckmorton knew there was no such thing as proof of a document's authenticity. This is because testing can prove forgery, but it cannot prove authenticity. Most of the experts who had authenticated Hoffman's documents were, like Dean Jesse, professional historians, not investigators. So Throckmorton, reportedly the only professionally qualified documents examiner in Utah, sprang into action to prove the so-called experts wrong and to help catch a murderer. First, Throckmorton inspected the Salamander letter. He saw that it had been written on 100% rag paper with iron gall ink, which was used in the 19th century for its permanence and resistance to bleeding. 
Thus, the letter was consistent with 19th century materials and had been the reason why earlier experts had proclaimed the letter genuine. But those experts were historians, naturally inclined to accept the documents at face value. Throckmorton, however, was a detective. He understood that Hoffman could have simply written the letter on old paper using iron gall ink. The special agent went to the county attorney's office and explained that the letter could very well be a forgery. At first, investigators there didn't believe him. Hoffman's documents had been certified by some of the country's leading experts, and a recent examination by the FBI had determined that the Salamander letter was genuine. Still, no one could figure out why he would want to kill Christensen and Sheets. Hoping Throckmorton could provide the answers, the county attorney agreed to bring him into the investigation. Throckmorton asked an old friend and fellow document examiner from Arizona named William Flynn to be his partner on the case. He believed that having a non-Mormon partner would make their investigation more credible. Throckmorton and Flynn got right to work, setting up a laboratory inside the church's archives. The lab was situated right next to the First Presidency's vault, where the most precious documents of the church were held, including the documents the church had purchased from Hoffman. In part one, we discussed how Hoffman produced a second anointing blessing supposedly written by Joseph Smith III, the founding prophet's son. Now, Throckmorton placed the blessing under a microscope, quite literally. Right away, he saw that the ink appeared to run in one direction and that there was more bleed through onto the other side of the paper than was typical. This was odd, but by no means was it enough to prove a forgery. Throckmorton investigated further. Magnifying the letter by 60 times, Throckmorton noticed that the ink was cracked like alligator skin. Checking other documents from the vault, Throckmorton and Flynn found the alligator cracking on some papers, but not others. Such a distinctive cracking was not typical to 19th century ink, though it wasn't yet clear what was causing it. Just before they were scheduled to close the lab for the day, Throckmorton suggested a game. He asked Flynn to hand him a document from one of two piles. One pile was of documents Hoffman had provided to the church. The other was general historical papers. Flynn wasn't to tell Throckmorton which pile a document came from. The special agent would examine it under the microscope and guess whether it was a Hoffman or a non-Hoffman. Flynn handed him a document. Throckmorton checked. Hoffman. Correct. Flynn handed him another paper. Non-Hoffman. Correct again. They went on like this, Throckmorton guessing correctly, until he didn't. On two occasions, he pronounced the document a Hoffman, but Flynn informed him that it had come from the general historical pile. Save for those two instances, however, Throckmorton guessed everything else correctly. Testing his theory, 
Throckmorton asked the church archivist to check the origin of the two documents which he had been wrong about. The next morning, the archivist knocked on their door to apologize. He'd made a mistake. The two documents that Throckmorton asked him to double-check did come from Hoffman. There had simply been an error in the filing system. Now, Throckmorton and Flynn knew they were onto something. But the real breakthrough came when they examined an early Mormon promissory note. Dated 1837 and 1841, the front of the note was written and signed by one Isaac Galland. Normally, such a document wouldn't be worth much, but this particular note had Joseph Smith's signature on the back, which increased its value tenfold. Examining it closely, Throckmorton and Flynn found that the ink on the front of the note was smooth-flowing, while the ink used in the Joseph Smith signature on the back was cracked. Checking the source with the vault archivist, they found that the note had originated from Hoffman. They were now certain that Hoffman had forged Joseph Smith's signature on the back of a genuine document in order to increase its value. According to reporter Robert Jones, Throckmorton and Flynn had found a kind of Rosetta Stone. They could use the Isaac Gallon note to unlock Hoffman's other forgeries. In November of 1985, Hoffman was released from the hospital, unaware that investigators were on the verge of nabbing him. Though it was public knowledge that he was the chief suspect in the bombings, murder charges had yet to be filed. Even with evidence stacking up against him, Hoffman's clients and friends refused to accept that he was capable of murder. Many believed that Hoffman would soon vindicate himself by turning over the McLellan collection. One of his friends, a theological historian who helped facilitate the sale of the Salamander letter, even spoke out on Hoffman's behalf. He told the press, Mark Hoffman is not a forger. I don't think he even knows how. If he were a forger, how could he have gone so long without a single slip? Many who knew Hoffman for years saw him as a good, upstanding Mormon and struggled to accept the idea that he was anything but. The hard truth was that Hoffman was a master forger a con artist, and a murderer. And he was about to be caught. Up next, we'll cover Hoffman's trial and his ultimate fate. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
Now, back to the story. After months of investigation in 1985 and 1986, document examiners George Throckmorton and William Flynn were convinced that Mark Hoffman was a forger, a fraud, and quite possibly a murderer. They had discovered that all of Hoffman's documents featured a strange cracked ink, but that wasn't definitive proof of forgery. They had to figure out why the ink was cracking. The investigators tried different recipes for homemade ink, but couldn't get theirs to crack like Hoffman's. Throckmorton and Flynn knew that in order to pass his documents off as genuine, Hoffman had to artificially age them, which meant exposing them to chemicals. Perhaps those chemicals had also cracked the ink. Hoping for a clue, Flynn turned to a book seized in one of the searches of Hoffman's home, Great Forgers and Famous Fakes by Charles Hamilton. Hamilton, incidentally, had been one of the experts to proclaim a Hoffman document genuine. In the book, Flynn read about a formula for iron gall ink. One of the ingredients was something they had not added to their previous tests, gum arabic. Now, they needed a chemist, and luckily, Flynn had one on speed dial. He called his brother, who worked for the Food and Drug Administration. His brother explained that gum arabic is a hardened sap added to food as a thickener, but it has other uses, such as increasing the viscosity of ink. The brother shipped him some gum arabic from Washington, D.C., and Flynn added the sap to their ink formula. He then used a steel pen to write on a piece of century-old paper and aged it in a bath of lye. Once placed under the microscope, Flynn watched the ink crack into the distinctive alligator skin pattern in Hoffman's documents. It turns out, when gum arabic is exposed to an alkaline base like lye, it becomes thick and brittle. Then, as it dries, it cracks. Hoffman had been too clever for his own good. He added gum arabic to his formula in order to make the texture as close to 19th century ink as possible. If he was less keen about making the ink as authentic as possible, the alligator cracking would never have appeared, and Throckmorton and Flynn may not have been able to prove he had forged his documents. Now that Throckmorton and Flynn knew Hoffman's formula and aging process, they could prove which of his hundreds of documents were forgeries. The Anthon transcript, which had brought Hoffman into the inner sanctum of the Mormon church, was a forgery. The Lucy Max Smith letter, one of the first he used to blackmail the church, was a forgery. The oath of a freeman, which nearly earned him a million dollar payday, was a forgery. And the infamous, scandalous, unprecedented salamander letter was a forgery. Everything that Mark Hoffman had ever produced was a fake. According to reporter Robert Jones, Hoffman planned some of his forgeries years in advance and meticulously constructed an environment in which they would be accepted. For instance, experts authenticated the Salamander letter by comparing the handwriting of its author, Martin Harris. One of the only other examples of that handwriting in existence came from the church's archives. 
except that that sample had also come from Mark Hoffman. He had sold it to the church years earlier. According to Robert Jones, the authenticators, without their knowledge, were certifying a Mark Hoffman forgery by comparing it to another Mark Hoffman forgery. For all of Hoffman's skill at deception, he had simply gotten in over his head. Forging the McLellan collection would have been an enormous undertaking, his biggest ever. Yet he volunteered to donate it by a set date, giving himself a virtually impossible deadline to meet. In a sense, Hoffman had dug his own grave. After months of meticulous investigation, George Throckmorton and William Flynn had finally proven that Mark Hoffman was a con artist. But they still had to demonstrate in court that he was responsible for the murders of Steve Christensen and Kathy Sheets. In February of 1986, Hoffman was charged with the murders of Stephen Christensen and Kathy Sheets and an eventual 32 felonies. The preliminary hearing did not go well for him. A witness from the Utah Crime Lab testified that one of Hoffman's fingerprints had been found on an order form used in a forgery. The form was filled out by Mike Hansen, Hoffman's alias. The writing was on the wall. So as Hoffman's trial drew closer, his attorneys entered into plea bargain negotiations. They arranged for Hoffman to plead guilty to two charges of second-degree murder and two counts of theft by deception fraud. In return, he'd get life in prison, avoiding the death penalty. Prosecutors doubted that the clean-cut Mormon would be sentenced to death anyway, and the families of his victims weren't eager for the death penalty, so they agreed to the deal. One unusual stipulation of the bargain was that Hoffman agreed to answer any and all questions surrounding the murders and forgeries. The most pressing unanswered question was, who was the target of the third bomb? As soon as the plea agreement was signed, Hoffman opened up to the prosecutors. He explained that when he initially built the bombs, he wasn't sure whom he would use them on. After debating between various possible victims, he settled on Steve Christensen in order to prevent the McLellan transaction from taking place. Hoffman then chose Gary Sheets as the second victim to be a red herring. He hoped the Sheets murder would make it seem like the bombings were connected to the failing investment business. He also claimed that the third bomb was a suicide attempt. He felt guilty about the murders and had decided to take his own life. Yet, this claim didn't quite add up. Despite admitting to the murders, many of the details that Hoffman offered to the prosecutors were easily disproved. Even at the end, with nothing left to gain, Hoffman just couldn't resist deceiving others. Instead, prosecutors theorized that the third bomb was only meant to blow up Hoffman's car. Then, he could pass off the destroyed papers in his trunk as the McLellan collection. Under pressure, Hoffman finally conceded that, yes, that was his intent. 
Prosecutor Robert Stott observed that while Hoffman was articulate when he explained how he forged documents, he became faltering and hesitant when trying to explain why. According to Linda Silito and Alan Roberts' book Salamander, another prosecutor who interviewed Hoffman believed that his motivation for lying was simple. Hoffman had not outgrown a childish delight in duping authority. Psychologists lend some support to this theory. According to a paper in Developmental Psychology by Angela Evans and Kang Lee, lying is a common behavior among young children. However, the authors found that lying in older children, and particularly adolescents, tends to be associated with behavioral problems, conduct disorders, and delinquency. In other words, while virtually all children lie, most come to understand that lying is usually immoral. As they get older, most adolescents learn to lie less often. But Hoffman, it seems, never developed to that point. During his hearing before the Board of Pardons, Hoffman himself explained, As far back as I can remember, I have liked to impress people through my deceptions. In fact, some of my earliest memories are of doing magic and card tricks. Fooling people gave me a sense of power and superiority. I believe this is what led to my forging activities. Unfortunately for Hoffman, indulging his childlike desire to fool people ultimately cost him everything he had worked for. On January 23, 1987, 32-year-old Mark Hoffman was sentenced to life in prison. The investigation turned out to be a mixed blessing for the LDS Church. On the one hand, documents which had embarrassed and challenged the Church were proven to be forgeries. On the other, Awkward details about Joseph Smith's interest in treasure hunting and the occult were now common knowledge. Not to mention the painful fact that church leaders, like so many others, had been tricked. Yet it seems the long-term damage caused by Hoffman to Mormonism was minimal. In the time since Hoffman's activity in the mid-1980s, the church has grown from 6 million members to 16 million today. In prison, Detective Farnsworth brought Hoffman a copy of the New York Times. In an article, Charles Hamilton, one of the many experts who had been duped, called Hoffman the world's greatest forger. Hoffman's response? Don't you think he's just saying that, trying not to look so stupid? Mark Hoffman remains in prison today where it's unlikely that he'll pull the wool over anyone else's eyes anytime soon. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Mark Hoffman, amongst the many sources we used, we found Salamander, the story of the Mormon forgery murders by Linda Silito and Alan Roberts, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Con Artists and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like con artists for free from your phone, desktop or smart speaker. To stream con artists on Spotify, just open the app and type con artists in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Erin Larson. This episode of Con Artist was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Alastair Murden. <laughs>